Our passage today is in Mark 12, verses 35 through 30 through 40. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. My name is Jim. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and it is always a joy to be able to open up God's Word with God's people and to see what God wants to say to us as His people. And so I want to ask you just to pray right now and ask the Lord just to speak to you this morning through His Word. So let's pray. Father, your word tells us in Hebrews that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it has the ability to penetrate our hearts, to dive into our lives, to see what is there, and it confronts us in many ways. Father, today I pray that you will just speak to us, your people, from your word, and that you will receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage that we have before us is really can be broke down into two different sections and identified by two different words. Those words are clarification and condemnation. And so we're going to approach this passage a little bit different this morning. In fact, we're going to look at the last part of the passage first. And then we're going to look at the front part of the passage, what, which I think is the most important part of the passage, last. And so what is really going on here in this passage? Well, from the beginning of chapter 11, we have been looking at the last week of the life and the ministry of Jesus. It's really hard to chronicle that last week of Jesus' life. In fact, I, I, probably the best guess that we can make is that this is the Tuesday of Passion Week. And so, what we're going to be seeing here is that, and what we're going to be looking at today is that Jesus is teaching the people. And perhaps this is the last time that Jesus will be directly teaching the people uh, in the temple. After this, Jesus either is speaking at his trial or he's directly teaching his disciples. Now, as Jesus is teaching the people here, he's warning the people about the scribes and their actions. As in many of Mark's accounts of what Jesus teaches, Mark only gives us a snapshot of what's going on. But in these three short verses, from verses 38 to 40, we're going to see uh, Jesus warns us of actions that lead to condemnation. Now, why does Jesus con condemn the scribes? Why is he condemning these scribes? Well, in these verses, he gives us three reasons, and these reasons are practices that you and I must avoid. And so, look at verse 38. 
And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And so, who are these scribes? Well, Dylan gave us a great indication last week of who these scribes were. You see, they were the religious, they were the religious lawyers of the day. They were the ones who just scoured over the law constantly, so they knew the law. But I want you to notice the first thing that Jesus says about these guys. The first thing he says is that they live for the attention of others. They lived for the attention of others. You see, these scribes, they liked the attention. And so what did they do? Jesus said they dressed up. They dressed in long robes with tassels on, and they walked around gaining the attention from other people. They liked attention. They, they were guys who dressed up. Today, we often associate dress with significance. And so you'll have guys, men, who will, will buy these $1,000 Armani suits and dress up and think, man, I'm somebody. Or you have ladies buy these very expensive Louis Vuitton dresses. Now, I had to look that up because I didn't know what that really was, what a designer dress was. But yeah, they'll buy these designer dresses and think, oh, I'm something now. It's all about significance. Listen. You see, these scribes, they were the power dressers of their day. Not only did they like the dress, but they liked their greetings. And so while they were walking around in their fine, long robes with tassels on them, they were getting all kinds of greetings from the people. Oh, hello, Mr. Scribe, how are you doing? Oh, hi, Mr. Scribe, how are you? And so they loved to get the attention of others. Not only did they love the attention of others, but secondly, they thought that they were hot stuff. Verse 39 says that they liked the best seats. They liked the places of honor at all the feasts that they would go to. And so these seats, these, these seats in the synagogue, these were the, these were the seats in front of the scrolls. These were the seats that were facing the people out there. And they thought that these special seats at the, in the synagogue and at, at the feast, when they got those seats, they thought, man, we are hot stuff. We've made it now. Listen, these seats were kind of like the pastor's throne on the stage. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Those little pews that the pastor sits at? Or those big chairs, those big long chairs that look like a throne for a king? My first church, I had one of those little pews sitting on the stage. I think I sat there three to four weeks, and I said, that's enough of this. I'm, I can't sit up there any longer. i got to sit down with the people. But no, they thought they, were, they made it because they liked these places, these special places, these special seats. Listen, James 2 talks about the sin of partiality. We must in no way separate people as 
oh, you're important and you're not that important. You have something to offer us, but you don't have something to offer us. You sit over here because you're so, so special and you're so important, but you, you sit in the back because you have nothing to offer us. Oh, you're rich and you have a lot of money that we can use and, and we can do missions with, but you, you don't have that much to offer us, so you, you, you sit back in the background. God, help us if this church ever does that. So listen, here's the takeaway from what we've seen so far. The Christian's attitude should be opposite of the scribes. The Christian's attitude has to be opposite of the scribes. Instead, our attitude ought to reflect 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 33, which says, Let the one who boasts... Boast in the Lord. Or Romans 12, 10. Love one another in brotherly affection. Outdo one another with brotherly affection. Or Philippians 2, 4, which says, Let each of you look not on his own interest, but also on the interest of others. You see, Sojourn, this is a fight of pride. And this is a fight that we have to fight every day of our lives. It can happen to anyone. It can happen to us as a church, and it can happen to you as an individual. I really like what Luther said about this. He said, grace is like water. It runs to the lowest place, so get low. Get low. You see, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, and that is all throughout the scriptures. What does God hate? God hates pride. What is God attracted to? He's attracted to humility. So let's get humble. There's a third thing that Jesus says about these guys. He says that they were spiritual fakes. They were spiritual fakes. Verse 40 says that they devoured widows' houses. Now, how did they do that? How did they devour the widows' houses? Now, although the scribes were the religious elite of the day, along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as long as they were this religious elite, but they were not wealthy. You see, they needed the assistance of other. They needed financial assistance by other people. They depended upon the generosity of others. But apparently, this practice became very evil. And it turned evil in that the scribes began to take advantage of the widows. Where they were to honor widows, instead, now they were devouring widows. You see, the scriptures teach us that we are to care for the most vulnerable. We are to care for widows and orphans. For the less fortunate, we're not to abuse them. True religion involves concern for social justice. But what do we see today? What we see today is that the elderly are often taken advantage of. We see scammers often pointing out and trying to scam the elderly. And so they're taking advantage of. But the saddest of all is the televangelist, those TV preachers who say, buy this prayer cloth that's been dipped in the Jordan River and you will be healed. 
Or put your hand on the screen and just see if the blessings will not flow over your life. Or send in your seed money and see if you won't receive a thousandfold back in return. And they're taken advantage of. You see, preachers like that are just like these scribes that we read of here in Mark. They pretend to care for their souls, but really all they care about is their money. Well, Jesus goes on, and he says, for pretense, they make long prayers. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that they fake at prayer. They fake at prayer. I want you to notice what Jesus says in Mark, or excuse me, in Matthew chapter 6. Look at verse 5 and 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, you have received their reward. It, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is sees in secret will reward you. And so... These guys liked the attention of others. They wanted to be seen. And so if that is what you want, Jesus says that's what you will get. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, when we pray, we need to go into our secret place, shut the door, and God will see and hear us in secret and reward us there. And so they liked to be seen. They liked the attention. Listen, private devotion is always harder than public performance. Is it important to you that people think that you're spiritual? Listen, we as a church, as a people of God, we have to avoid what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, 1, when he said, I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Sojourn, let's be real. Let's be real. Let's be people who don't abuse other people. Let's pray for the glory of God and the good of others. And then finally, Jesus' final words to us, has to be a warning to all of us. As he says, people with these kind of actions will receive the greater condemnation. You see, these words that Jesus just said, they ought to ring loud and clear in all our ears. Well, let's turn our attention now to the clarification Jesus makes about his identification at the front end of this passage. Now, let's remember something here. Let's remember that Jesus has been in the temple all day long. He's been in there all day long. In fact, for the last four weeks, we've been seeing that Jesus has been, been, been bombarded with question after question after question, and all for the sole purpose that they might trap him, that they might accuse him, and they ultimately might kill him. But what happens? Well, Jesus avoids every trap that they set for him. 
And he answers every question beautifully. So much that, as, you saw, as we saw last week in verse 40, 34, that no one would dare to ask him any more questions. But now, Jesus gets to ask a question. Jesus gets to set the agenda. Well, what do you suppose Jesus is going to ask? What question will Jesus ask? Now remember, this is the last time that Jesus will, pe- will teach publicly to the people. So what question was Jesus going to ask? Now, you would think that he would want to ask something that just gets right to the heart, right? Something like, well, you guys want to ask me into your hearts? Is that what Jesus wants to ask? Well, what question does Jesus ask? Well, look at verse 35 in Mark chapter 12. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, without any kind of background, that kind of seems like a dud of a question. Jesus, is this really the best that you could do? Is this the best question you could, could ask? I mean, it's kind of like this is some kind of technical question here. It's almost like there's a kind of a, a play on words here. It's, it's kind of like, how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could cut, chuck wood? I got through that. It seems kind of confusing, doesn't it? Well, the crowd didn't think so. I mean, we saw there, we see there in uh, the end of the 37 that the crowd heard him gladly. The crowd heard him gladly. Now, sometimes we forget that it wasn't until the priest turned the crowd on Jesus that they really liked him. They liked to listen to Jesus. They heard him gladly. Now, they didn't understand who he was, and it wasn't that they had some kind of saving faith. So what is going on with this question? The question is, how can the scribes say the Christ? Now, who's the Christ? The word Christ just simply means the anointed one. It's the Greek word of the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for Messiah. And so... How can the scribes say the Christ is the son of David? Now, for us to really understand about this question, we need to kind of get a glimpse into what kind of expectations that the Jews had for the Messiah. And so, we can look to 2 Samuel verse seven or chapter 7 tells us uh, that God promises David... He promises David that his kingdom will be forever, will last forever. And so David had a son, Solomon. But you know what? Solomon died. He didn't live forever. In fact, Judah was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. And the temple will be ultimately be destroyed. Or we could look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, and see that, that there's going to be a shoot from 
the, from the root of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. You remember back in Mark when Jesus walks by blind Bartimaeus? What does blind Bartimaeus say? He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Listen, the blind man could see what others could not see. That he would be the son of David. Listen, Jesus isn't questioning whether the Messiah would be the son of David. The Jews widely agreed that he would be. The question that Jesus is raising to us is this. Will the Christ be merely the son of David? Is that all that he will be? And so Jesus quotes here in Mark chapter 12, he quotes from Psalms 110. Now, interesting note about Psalms 110. It is the, the one psalm that is quoted more or alluded to more than any other psalm in all the New Testament. One commentator said that there is either 33 direct quotations or allusions to this Psalm 110. Now, I can just imagine it's probably not your go-to psalm that your favorite psalm that you go to, but it's so important. It's such an important psalm. Now, before we go to this psalm, I want to point out something in verse 36. Notice what it says. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. Now, a lot of times we just kind of skip over those little verses like that. But there's a lot going on here. You see, what Jesus is saying here is he's giving us his view of Scripture. Jesus uses the Old Testament for his case. He's quoting the Old Testament for his case. If anyone didn't need to quote the Old Testament, it would have been Jesus to make his case. But what he's showing us here is what he believes about Scripture. And so Jesus shows us that he believes that the Scriptures are authoritative. They're authoritative. But Jesus also shows us that they're not just authoritative, but he believes in the inspiration of Scripture. You see when he says here, David himself in the Holy Spirit. So the Scriptures are inspired. Not that they inspire us. They do. But they're inspiring because they are the very words of God. So to quote the Old, the Old Testament is to quote from the Holy Spirit. So that's why Hebrews, Hebrews 3, 7, when it quotes Psalms, it says, as the Holy Spirit says. So to say that the Bible says is to say that God says. And so Jesus is affirming for us that the Scriptures come from God and they are the very words of God. Listen, God has the ability to communicate to us in human language in such a way that we can understand Him. And so, what, Je what Jesus believes here about the Scriptures is that they're authoritative and they're inspiring, they're inspired. 
But notice also that Jesus believes that there is some meaning behind the Scripture. Now, the people didn't know it. He's wanting to draw it out. And so that's why he hearkens back to this text in Psalms 110. So let's read Psalms 110. It's very short. It's not that long. We can read the whole thing. So look at Psalms 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. People will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garment from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand, and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, this psalm really has two layers of meaning. There's a, there's a near meaning or a near, near fulfillment, and then there's a further meaning and a further fulfillment. And so the near meaning is that when this song, when this song was spoken of, this was like a, a song, a coronation song for the crowning of the king, the coming of the king. And so that's why it said, it said, my Lord God said to our Lord the King. It was, it was a coronation of the King. But then there's a, a, a further meaning. You see, the Jews, when they got, came to the first century, they got to thinking about things and they looked at this and thought, there was such a bigger and much grander understanding to this psalm. I mean... They understood this, that, yeah, David was a great king, but there's, this is so much grander than David. And so, by the first century, this was widely believed that this was a messianic prophecy with a further fulfillment. And so, the two parts of this psalm can be marked out by what the Lord says. So, look at verse 1. He says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand is, is a place of honor for the king. A place of honor. And then, verse 4, notice what he says. It says, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, the Messiah is going to be a king and he's going to be a priest. Now, the, after the order of Melchizedek, who's this Melchizedek? Well, we don't know a lot about Melchizedek. There's only a few places in the scriptures. One place is Genesis 14 when it refers to Melchizedek coming and blessing Abram after he dis- uh, defeats the kings in the valley. And he blesses him signifying that, that Melchizedek, this, this guy Melchizedek was greater than Abram. And it says that Melchizedek was a priest of the high God. He was a priest. And so 
while the other priests, all the other priests were after the order of Aaron, this Messiah, the Messiah would be after a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, let's look back in Mark. <clears throat> now, you might have noticed back in Psalms, the first Lord was in capital letters. That was signifying the covenant name of God, which is Yahweh. The second one was in small letters, which is the word Adonai. By the first century, the Jews were so, they would, they would not speak the name Yahweh. There was so much reverence to it that they wouldn't speak it. In fact, it was almost superstition to them. And so they would use the word Adonai. They would say Adonai when it came to Lord. Now, here in Mark, notice what it says. It, it, it uses the same word. The word in the Greek is kurios. And so, my kurios says to my kurios. It's the same word. So, what is Jesus asking here? What is he really asking? He's saying, how can the Christ be David's son if David here calls him my Lord? You see, Jesus is not rejecting the fact that the Messiah would be a son of David. There's so many different confessions in the New Testament about that. What he's asking is, might he be more than a son of David? What must he be if King David, the greatest king ever, calls him my Lord? Listen, what kind of father... Would ask his, would call his son Lord. Now, I love my son Garrett, but I just don't think I could call him Lord Garrett. It just doesn't seem to fit. Now, let's remember how high the stakes are here. In fact, Mark 8, Peter already made a confession that Jesus, you are the Christ. Later on in Mark 14, we'll see that Jesus himself will confess before the high priest that I am the Christ. Jesus is wanting the people to see that the Messiah is more than just the son of David. He is the Lord of David. Now let's think about the conversation that we saw last week between the scribe and Jesus. The scribe asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe said, you've answered right. And Jesus says, you're right that I answered right. You're right. Now, the man, the scribe, seemed to be sincere. It appeared that he knew his Bible. It appeared that he affirmed that God is the only God and he loved God with all his heart and he loved his neighbors. But then Jesus, what did Jesus say? But you're only close to the kingdom. You're only close to the kingdom. Why was he only close? Because he had not yet made the connection between the fact that Jesus is Lord. 
He is Lord. You see, what Jesus is doing here, he's explaining why that guy fell short. Because he hadn't made the connection that the fact that Jesus is the Lord. This is perhaps the first great central confession of the church. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 2 Corinthians 12.3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4.5, For we proclaim it is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord. Listen, the language Jesus is Lord is so familiar to us that it kind of just goes over our heads sometimes. Jesus is Lord. Put a different name there. Lord Tim. Now, Tim, I like you, but I don't think I can call you Lord. Lord Sarah. Sarah's a great lady, but I don't think so. Lord David. You have a kingly name, but I don't think I could call you Lord. But Lord Jesus. There's just something that, about that. It really is quite the confession. I think sometimes we forget the fact that Jesus was a man. Sometimes we don't realize that Jesus was just like everyone else back then. You could see him. You could feel him. You could put your arms around him. He was like everyone else. How do we know that? Well, you remember when Judas went to betray him? What did he tell the guards? Take the guy that I give a kiss to, that I kiss. Why didn't he just say, get the guy who is 6'6", wearing a robe, blonde hair, blue eyes, get that guy? Or why didn't he just say, get the guy who has a halo with wings and thunderbolts? Why didn't he just get that guy? No, no. He was like everyone else. You could not recognize him. You couldn't pick him out of a crowd. Isaiah says that he had no form, no beauty, where we would be attracted to him. Because he was just a normal guy from an insignificant little small town in Galilee. But what he did and what he said was absolutely incredible. Amen. And it seemed like maybe that what he was saying about the Messiah, the Christ, maybe some of the people were beginning to think, well, maybe he's saying this about himself. Maybe he's saying this about himself. Amen. And so, will you dare to call him Lord? Will you dare to say, your Lord? Listen, we live in a day of small Jesuses. If the central confession of the early church was Jesus is Lord, 
You know what our confession today is? The central confession is today? Jesus is nice. Jesus is teacher. Jesus is friend. Jesus is guru. Jesus is wise. Jesus is encouraging. Jesus is unconditional love. Now, some of those are true about Jesus, but as a central confession of who he is, they're all false because they fall so short and don't say enough about the Jesus, who Jesus is. And they offer this world a very small Jesus. You see, a lot of churches are offering a small Jesus. And so, what does it mean? What does it mean when you say and confess that Jesus is Lord? Well, let me mention a couple of things here. First thing, it means Jesus is the Lord God. Jesus is the Lord God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is dealing with food offered to the idols. There were so many different idols and gods in that day. And people would, would offer their food to the idols, and then they would go sell that food in the marketplace. And the believers would say, what, what do we do with this? Do we, do we eat this food offered to idols? And so listen to what Paul says here in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols... We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although they may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father for whom all things and for whom, all, or for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so, Paul is really hearkening back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 here. And he's, he's affirming that there is only one God. There's only one God. And then in verse 6, I want you to notice what he says. For yet there, are, there is only one God it's the Father from whom all things and for whom all we exist. One God. But then notice what he does. Then he says, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, where did that come from? And so what Paul does here is take the very central affirmation of, the, of Jewish monotheism. And he puts this one God that... God and Father, and then he adds Jesus right with him as this one God, affirming this Jewish monotheism. Amen. One God. So to call Jesus Lord is to call him the Lord God. Look, to love the Lord God with all your heart is to love Jesus with all your heart. If you love your country, and you love your sports teams, and you love your kids, and you love your husband, and you love your wife, but you do not love the Lord Jesus, 
with all your heart, then you're not loving the one person who is worthy to be loved. If you love him, you will listen to him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so, it means that Jesus is the Lord God. It means that he's the Lord God. Not only that, to call Jesus Lord means that he is the only Lord. The only Lord. Let me show you this in Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45. Look at verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it, He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Now skip down to verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel, therefore. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? What is, was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now does that language sound familiar to you? Does that sound familiar? Listen. Here we have one of the greatest passages in the Bible about the very uniqueness of Israel's God, the, mo- a very, the very center of monotheism, that He is the only God. See, over and over we see, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no other. I am the only Savior. I am the only judge, the only righteous one. To me, every knee will bow, every tongue Confess and swear allegiance, he says. Now look at Philippians chapter 2. Listen to what it says. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the very name, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, And every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you realize that Paul was quoting from Isaiah 45 when he wrote that? The passage the Jews would turn to to say, there is only one God. And Paul would say, yes, And absolutely, because his name, and you know his name now, his name is Jesus Christ. You see, this is a big issue in our day. This is a very big issue. The issue is this. Do you have Jesus and, or do you have Jesus only? If you have Jesus and, 
then you have lots of friends and you get a lot of applause because no one really cares if you have Jesus and. I mean, you have Jesus. But if you say Jesus only, he is the only name by which we must be saved, well, friends, that's a whole different story. And it's going to divide people. So Jesus is the Lord God. And he is the only Lord. But also he is the conquering Lord. The conquering Lord. Did you hear Psalms 110? It says, your enemies are your footstool. You shall shatter kings on that day. He will execute judgment. Revelation 17, 14 says this. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, and He is Lord of lords and King of kings. We must remember that Jesus is a conquering king and also a suffering servant. Very few people want to rejoice in both. You see, some of us want a suffering servant. We want a God who sympathizes with us. We want a God who feels what we are going through and a pain that we're, we're going through. But we don't want a God that conquers. We want, we, want, we want a God that judges. That's too barbaric. But Jesus is both. Listen, it is absolutely essential to the Christian tradition and faith that we confess that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Revelation 22 says this at the very end. Come, Lord Jesus. What are you praying when you say, come, Lord Jesus? And folks, I've been praying that a lot. The days we're living in, I've been praying that a lot. What are you saying when you say, come, Lord Jesus? Are you saying, Jesus, come and give the whole world a, good, a great big group hug? No. You're saying, come, set things right, Jesus. You're saying, come, judge the, your enemies, Jesus. Give your people justice, Jesus. Give the humble poor a break, Jesus. Give the arrogant rich what's coming to them, Jesus. Put an end to pain. Put an end to evil. You're saying, Jesus, you are Lord over this world. Come and claim and redeem what is rightfully yours. Glorify your Father in salvation and in judgment as you come. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus. He is a conquering Lord. Not only that, He is a priestly Lord. He is a priestly Lord. If we had time, we could go to Hebrews 7 and see that, that Jesus is not like the other priest. When the, the priest offered sacrifices, they offered the blood of bulls and goats. But Jesus is a different high priest, the Bible says, because he offered a sacrifice once and for all. He offered his own blood. You see, this Lord is a Lord that lays down his life. Lays down his life. Now I want you to get this. This is so important. If you skip over how big 
and how exalted and how powerful and how great of a Lord Jesus is, that He's creator, He's exalted, He conquers His enemies. If you skip over all that, then you will miss how stunning it is that Jesus laid down His life for you. It is only when you and I understand what it means that Jesus is Lord, that He is the Creator, the God of the universe, the ruler of all this, that that Lord offered up His own body for you. So there's no other Lord and no Lord like this. Some of us have questions this morning. And we ought to pray and ask God what those questions are. Some of us, you'll get answers. Some of you will get answers. Some of you won't. Some of you want to ask, why is there so much suffering in this world? Why have I suffered so much in my life? Some of you want to ask, am I ever going to get married? Some of you want to ask about your kids. Are my kids going to make it? Especially in this world that we're living in right now. And it's good to have questions. But have you ever considered this? That Jesus has a question for you. At the end of a day, a day of questions, this is the question of the day. Am I Lord? That was his question. Am I Lord? Listen. Some of you are committed and you do believe that Jesus is Lord. And what I believe wants, what God wants to do and work in your lives is more joy, more worship, more confidence, more encouragement that you don't serve a small little Jesus. Some of you are not committed. Some of you are compromised. You say the words, he is Lord. It's easy. It's only three words. He is Lord. Very easy to say it. But you don't really say it. Because you, can't only, you, can't, you can really only say it by the Holy Spirit. And so you say Jesus is Lord, but you don't really say it. And that's the problem. You don't want a Lord that you serve, you want a Lord to serve you. You want a Lord that gets you what you want, that takes care of all your problems, that fetches you what you need. You don't want Jesus as Lord. You want, you want a Jeeves, a butler, that you can come. I, I need this. I want this. You're not committed. You're compromised. You don't have really anything to show for, for your life spiritually. Then some of you are not committed. You're not compromised. But you're just considering. You're thinking about it. You're thinking about this guy named Jesus. I mean, you're, you're really, what you're doing is you're sitting on the fence. You sat on the fence too long, you're going to fall off. 
Listen, you're, you're thinking about this man named Jesus. There's something about him. There's something in your heart that you know there's something about this guy. But you're not quite sure what to do with him. Listen, don't wait too long. Jesus doesn't give us the option to wait too long and muddle over who he is. Because he thought that he was not only David's son, but that he was David's Lord. And this is true whether you believe it or not. You see, it is not that Jesus is waiting for us to somehow give him some kind of title that he already possesses. He is the Lord. Whether we sing it, whether we fake it, whether we hate it, or whether we shout it from the top of our lungs, Jesus is Lord. What matters is what we we do with his lordship, what you do with his lordship. He is David's son, and he is David's Lord, and nothing will change that. What we must consider, what you must consider today, is will he be your Savior, and will he be your Lord? Let's pray. Let's bow. Father, the word is really, really clear in that you oppose the proud, actively opposing those who are proud, and you give grace to the humble. And that's a scary word because if we're honest, we all know that there's pride that's in us. And so God, right now, we want to ask that you would kindly, gently, lovingly expose our pride. Show us an area of pride in our own hearts. Father, that area of pride our hearts of pride, would you help us to um, take them to you, confess our sins to you. And may we receive your grace. As we humbly say, we need your help to get rid of the sin that's in us, that we can't just do better and try harder and, and our pride disappear, our sin disappear. God, we need your help. We need your spirit to cleanse us and sanctify us. So would you help us to cry out in humility? In our humility, we're to cast our cares and anxieties upon you, even the cares and anxieties of our own sin, the the cares and anxieties of our, our questions that we have. All of those things, would you help us to cast them upon you? The humble are those who who draw near to you because they know in you they can find grace to help them in their time of need. Because if they draw near, they know that you're going to draw near to us. So would you help us turn away from our pride to humility and draw near to you?
We thank you for the, the words and the sacred and ancient confession that Jesus is Lord. And what that means for us in terms of our response is that we are to submit all of our lives to you. That there's not to be one area of our lives that is not submitted in obedience to you. So God, would you just reveal areas where we're not submitted to you? God, I would even ask that there are those who haven't submitted to you ever, who haven't called you Lord, who haven't made that confession uh, from sincerity in their own hearts, that, that, that you would draw them even now. You're such a good Lord in that you are the Lord who calms seas, who will judge the living and the dead, but who also gave his life for those who are weary and heavy laden, for those who are burdened and full of grief, for those who are sinners and sick and need a doctor. That's the kind of Lord you are. So would you draw those who don't know you, who have never confessed you as Lord to yourself? You're the, the lion, the conquering king, the ruler, but you're also the lamb who was slain. And God, help us to have the, the right response to Jesus as Lord, who has the right to command us, come follow me, and we drop everything and run after him. Lift up our eyes that we might see what it means that you are Lord, that you can come and heal diseases, calm storms, and forgive sin. And in our response, may we follow you with all of our heart, love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And may that overflow into love for others. And even now, God, would you help us respond rightly to you being Lord as we sing together. May we sing to one who is truly worthy of our worship. And may the way we sing be a reflection of our hearts that know that you are worthy. And we pray again that you...